MSW Media. So what do you make of Donald Trump? Can his personal history help us understand his bizarre and disturbing personality? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, we've got a, a really unusual episode today uh, because we're going to be talking to Mary Trump. And I have to tell everybody, Mary Trump is uh, definitely not our typical guest. Uh, she has some real firsthand knowledge, uh, uh, you know, and and um, insight that a lot of our guests don't have. And she's really somebody who, in many ways, is like a lot of our listeners. Uh, she follows me on Twitter. She's listened to our podcast. She's a member of the resistance. Uh, and she's somebody um, who's not only family history, but her own um, accomplishments and training in her own life give her some real insights into the president. Well, look, there's nothing typical about this administration. So having somebody who is not your typical guest, I think, fits for our times. <laughs> nothing. This is all unprecedented. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear what she has to say because I know that our fans are interested. Man, did Twitter blow up yesterday when you announced that she was going to be on your podcast? Yeah, it definitely has gotten a big reaction from people. And I will just say, you know, I have gotten a huge reaction from 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 folks, including people I know about her book. I mean, her book, um, which I have been reading uh, to prepare for this uh, uh, episode, um, you know, her book has really touched a chord with a lot of people because I think all of us in watching Donald Trump are wondering what the hell is up with this guy? I mean, I, I you know, earlier this week, uh, yesterday, I watched uh, the full video of the Axios interview by Jonathan Swan. And I have to say, I you just you, you kind of sit in wonderment with this with, you know, how the heck could somebody say the things that he says? I mean, I at one point, you know, he's talking about how you know, he did more for African-Americans than uh, Lyndon Johnson. And when he is when Jonathan uh, asked him about the Civil Rights Act, he's like, yeah, that didn't work out so well. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? I mean, he seems like he's out of his mind. Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, I, I I have to think that everyone that works around him just has to wonder what were we thinking when we said yes to this interview or if they even have any input whatsoever. And I will say Renato, to your point about, uh, you know, 
with the things that he says and how startling it is and and really uh shocking what always troubles me more are his supporters who seem unflappable when it comes to his madness i mean they they double down in many instances yeah i I have to say i mean i i've talked before about how i have family members who are really caught up with him and a lot of his uh, rather uh, disturbing beliefs and uh, attitudes and uh, approach to the world Uh, and i think you know it's just it's, it's some of those some of their views are shameful uh, and there's definitely an element of ignorance there, and and but also I think an element in which he succeeded in fooling everyone. And I think uh, what Mary's book helps show, and she does a fantastic job of this, is how you know I think she's as astonished as all of us. Uh, but you know she kind of shows how much of Trump's ethos that he's built around him and image is fake. Yeah. Well. <laughs> He's a he's a master at the sales, although not of his own book. I want to ask Mary how she feels about the fact that her book uh, outsold his in one week, what's taken him a couple decades to do, by the way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I have the feeling she wrote more of her own book than he did as well. Um, <laughs> as we know, he, he go, has ghostwriters on his book. I will say that one thing that is interesting about today's episode is, you know, one thing I've shied away from, Patty, is there's a lot of people who do what I'll call armchair psychology about Donald Trump, Yes, where they essentially are like, well, you know, I've read the DSM and, you know, he fits these various criteria. You know, George Conway, who I respect as a lawyer a great deal, does a lot of this. And I just I don't feel qualified to make mental health pronouncements about people. Clearly, Trump is out of his mind in any colloquial sense. What what whatever you know you know mental illness he has. I I actually have sympathy generally for people who have mental illnesses when they're not running our country. Um, I will say um, you know one thing that I I found refreshing about Mary Trump is that despite her training as as you know in this area somebody who actually could potentially render uh, opinions you know i think you know she points out that you would need to kind of have do sit downs and have sessions with him to really understand exactly what is going on within his brain she has her own views based on her relationship with him and the, her you know the fact that she's a member of his family uh, but that's different than saying you know here's my diagnosis right I, I saw some of those posts as well. And, and, you know, we also don't want to get into the territory of diminishing, as you mentioned, what it truly means to diagnose somebody. Uh, there were some posts that were like going to like frontal lobe injuries and things like that. And they're like, wow, that's a lot. But, you know, OK. You know, I, I can understand why people are scratching their heads. Um, you know, it, it is remarkable to me that the president of the United States is someone who says and does the things that he does on a regular basis. I think all of us are wondering, you know, how it is that there are millions of people who hang on his every word and uh, follow, uh, you know, uh, you know, his guidance and his his pronouncements uh, as gospel. And, you know, I hope um, and I will just say, you know, I hope that Mary can help us understand some of that. I, I will say that in reading her book, I felt a great deal of sympathy for her. It has got to be a very difficult thing to be a relative of Donald Trump in this era. Oh, no doubt. Um, I'm, it's fascinating. Uh, I just wish that it wasn't, you know, it's fascinating to watch the drama and craziness unfold, but I just wish it wasn't coming at such a high 
cost uh, in lives uh, in our safety. Um, you know, in the last in the last day, even with the explosion in Beirut, his speculation is dangerous. And I don't know why there aren't more people reining him in or uh, taking control in, in other ways. Um, yeah. I, look, we have gotten to a point where whenever somebody tries to rein him in, they end up getting booted out of the White House. He wants to do what he wants to do. I think Republicans generally found him to be a useful person because he doesn't really care that much about policy. He'll let them do whatever he wants or whatever they want, right? The Senate Republicans get their judges or their tax cuts or whatever it is that they want. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we've we certainly learned a lot. and We've had a lot of discussions over the years now uh, about, you know, the fact that our system doesn't really constrain him. And so we're really, I think, all living at the sort of more or less at his uh, a whimsy and we're at his at his mercy, so to speak. You know, it reminds me of the great analogy, um, you know, that uh, the comedian John Mulaney came up with of a dog or excuse me, of a horse, a horse. running loose in a hospital, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and, and he's just like, we're all want to see what the horse is going to do next. And. It's great as long as you're not on life support in the hospital, I suppose. Uh, and right. if the horse, um, you know, uh, kicks out the uh, power cord or something like that, you could die. And I think, you know, the unfortunate thing here is that the horse is breaking the hospital and, and trashing the hospital and there are people dying. And we have, you know, 160,000 plus people who are who are dead. And Trump's saying, well, it is what it is. And, you know, showing his various graphs and charts uh, you know, trying to put lipstick on a pig, so to speak, to use an analogy, uh, an old analogy, uh, you know, it's it's disturbing. The sort of lack of empathy towards others uh, is is just unbelievable. Yeah. Whew. Crazy, crazy times. Yes, crazy times. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I think we're going to have no shortage of questions for our guest. Uh, and so let me bring in our guest, Mary Trump. Uh, if you don't know who Mary Trump is, you probably haven't been uh, watching much uh, news uh, over the last month or so. Uh, but Mary Trump is the niece of Donald Trump, the president of the United States. And she's written a book called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Uh, by Simon and Schuster, you can get it on Amazon or in any of your local uh, neighborhood bookstores. Uh, which, of course, I love my neighborhood bookstore. And uh, you know, it is a—it's been a bestseller, and I think it has sparked a conversation about uh, what is going on in Donald Trump's mind and why he became the man he is today. So let's bring in Mary Trump. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast this week. Uh, it's so good to be here, Renato. Thank you for having me. Well, that's great. I will tell you, I was so flattered uh, to know that you actually listened to our podcast. Uh, that that is uh, that is uh, really something. It's got to be unusual being somebody who is a consumer of news about somebody that you know so well. You know, I think it, <laughs> at some point you just kind of have to detach, and because uh, you know, otherwise I would end up living in a bubble and not know what's going on. <laughs> so um, I just have to pretend that it's the only thing I could say, actually, is I wish everybody would call him Donald. Uh, but, you know, that aside, I just I just try to step back a little bit, be objective and uh, get my information. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's I'm sure it is a little bit surreal. 
I, I gotta I, one thing I wonder about uh, Mary is, you know, it one thing I got the sense of from reading your book, and I have to say, um, I'd heard so much from so many people about your book. Uh, so I and I've been reading it over this past week, and I really got the sense that it was a hard thing for you to to come to a decision to write a, a book like that. It, it it was actually a bit of a uh, a, a personal struggle in a way because there were some good reasons not to. Uh, how can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you? Sure, uh, and you're absolutely right. This was not um, a fun task, you know, uh, and I would have preferred not to have to write it. And I know that probably sounds odd to say that I had to, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, given given what. I was witnessing, um, and given the fact that I, I felt like we'd gotten to the point where if there if there was anything I could do, then I felt an obligation to do it. Um, and that wasn't the case before the election, uh, although I had thought about it in 2015. I thought I had thought about coming out and and you know telling some some of what I knew about Donald and his unfitness. But there was nothing, literally nothing for me to point to. You know, I didn't have any evidence. I didn't have any anything tangible. Uh, so I felt that since he was getting away with everything else before the election, um, why would anybody pay attention to what I had to say? Because they would have just said I was the embittered, disinherited niece. So it wasn't until um, Suzanne Craig, uh, the extraordinary investigative reporter, at the New York Times, knocked on my door and over the next few months convinced me that I had in my possession documents that, in her words, can help them rewrite the his the financial history of the Trump family, that I began to understand that I might actually have uh, some leverage and that I could present my story in in a more concrete context. That's really interesting. You know, one thing I find really interesting about what you said, Mary, is you talked about whether you have evidence or not. And if, you know, if you pay any attention to the news, you know, I, I'm I'm in certainly you, you mentioned you've listened to the podcast. Uh, uh, you know, I'm somebody who cares a lot about whether we have evidence versus there's a lot of times people have speculation and theories and. We all, uh-huh. I think, have things that we discuss over a glass of wine, um, but that's different than having evidence. It, it seems to me that the evidence that you provided to the New York Times really brought something very important to the public record. That analysis of the, you know, of um, the Trump financial empire and um, some of, for, for example, the tax, the tax issues that are, that arose from that. Were, it was unbelievable um, analysis, and it's interesting to me that it did not sh- str- like dramatically shift the public conversation about Donald Trump. I'm curious, wh- why do you think that is, and what was your what, what, what did you what did you think about the public reaction to it? Yeah, that is such a great point, and it it's kept me up nights thinking about that because you know I I I risked a lot by handing over the documents, and Sue Craig and Russ Butner worked for almost two years, night and day, in a locked room, uh, working on that just a stunning piece of journalism. So, you know, I think in part 
it was because there was this idea about Donald. Um, and I, I think this is an indictment of the media in some ways that all of these things about him that should be disqualifying were already, quote unquote, baked into the cake. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, it's just more of the same of what we already know, which is awful. I mean, you know, you wouldn't say that about any a serial committer of crimes, right? You wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, he's already uh, robbed 20 banks. So, of course, he's going to rob the 21st. So what difference does it make? Uh, so that was part of it. Um, the other part of it was this really bizarre idea. And I, I see this with the book as well. Um, people dismissing it because, you know, well, where was this in 2016? Like, if we had had this information in 2016. Well, we didn't. So why does that diminish its value now? Like, that article should have been enough to get him impeached, if not removed from office. Uh, I mean, we can say the same thing about dozens of other incidents, but, I mean, that's certainly the case. So how many times have you had heard people say, well, any other president would have been undone by this particular right. horror. Uh, so I think it's just this this complacency and this weird, it's like, okay, guys, if, if we had, if we acted like this mattered instead of complaining that, that we didn't have it in some mythical period in the past, then maybe it would have made a difference. Yeah, I think that there is definitely almost like an outrage fatigue. You know, I saw that a little bit today with you know, for example, Senator Romney uh, today was saying, well, you know, having uh, the campaign acceptance speech on the white in the White House lawn is technically uh, illegal, but he's got to have it somewhere, you know, and it's sort of oh, like, no. is, is that true? <laughs> yeah, he said oh, something like to those words of those affected may not technically I'm not sure it's technically legal, but he's got to have it somewhere. And I, I and I, I actually respect, uh, you know, Senator Romney for particularly when the chips were down voting to remove uh, Trump from office. But, um, my, you know, I think the my, it's, it's a good example of what I mean, which is, in other words, someone who has pushed out, pushed against what Donald uh, Trump has done on a regular basis uh, is just like, OK, you know what? I mean, it's a oh, yeah, it's a if I like the hatch act, like, you know, I, we've got bigger problems to deal with. You know, we get so many problems. I feel like what happens is there's an outrage or a scandal a minute. And the press struggles to keep up with all of it. And, and we just are constantly moving to the next story, the next story. I mean, the Russian bounty gate a story that was a big deal almost a month ago. Pe- people aren't even talking about it much anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you that people get tired of it. Um, but on the other hand, part of the reason where where we are is because his entire life, Donald has gotten away with the little thing, right? And, I mean, I personally don't think it's a small thing, but if to violate the emoluments clause or the Hatch Act. But let's say compared to allowing Russia to place bounties on our soldiers, clearly it's, it's in a different, different universe entirely uh, in terms of its seriousness. However, he should have been held to account for all of that all the way through because then it, it sort of sets up this atmosphere of, um, you know, what's permissible. 
and the the edges of that envelope keep getting pushed. So he's literally gotten away with violating the Constitution every single day of his administration. So, you know, where where do we decide to draw that the line? And apparently the decision, certainly by the Republicans, has been never to draw the line anywhere. You know, Mary, there there are obviously a lot of questions and you bring up a great point about how he, he keeps getting away with these things and, and not obviously just during his administration, but it sounds like his entire life. So he wouldn't necessarily want these stories out there. We know he has a great propensity for suing people. What can you tell us about your experiences as he tried as he, he tried and many other people tried to block the publication of your book? Yeah, and I, I just want to clarify something I said. He actually is allowed to get away with things. It's not like he's yes. trying because he's just <laughs> assumes that he's going to do whatever he's going to do and everybody else will, will cover <laughs> for him. <laughs> so it's an important distinction. It um, is. You know, what's, what, what I'm really happy about, I can't say I'm proud of it because it didn't actually have anything to do with me, but um, what was a great result in terms of the, the lawsuit that, Donald, my uncle Robert, my aunt Marianne brought against the book uh, is that um, not not that not that we prevailed, although that's that's wonderful. It's that for the first time in his life, Donald's attempts to block something he didn't like by you know out lawyering or out maneuvering or out waiting or out spending somebody didn't work, uh, and I. I'm guessing that that probably um, was not something he was prepared for, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. I don't I'm guessing he didn't know that I had Ted Boutros, Annie Champion and Gibson Dunn backing me and, uh, you know, who were willing to pull up all of the stops and do whatever they needed to do to represent me and the book and my cause. Um, that that gives me some joy, honestly, because that's what he's always done. So that if you want to run for president, then any NDA you've ever made somebody sign should be invalidated. Well, you know, it's interesting. He has really tried to use NDAs in a more aggressive way than uh, anyone that I have ever encountered. In fact, you know, he's been trying to use that even for people who are public employees, public uh, servants uh, working in the White House trying to argue that they their NDAs cover the work that they're doing for the public using tax dollars. And you are, I agree, you had fantastic First Amendment counsel uh, in that uh, in that matter, uh, who, I, who I do know, uh, who is, you know, who is representing you there. You know, and that I think that that battle, uh, you know, you could I think it was pretty apparent from the book you could see that coming and you knew that you were going to face that from, I think, from probably the day you put pen to paper, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if, um, I think they would have sued me even if there hadn't been a settlement agreement because, you know, we would have made that assumption. They have more money, they have more lawyers, they have more power, so they could just, you know, beat me into submission and I'll I'll walk away, you know. Um, And that, you know, that raises the point, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know, but like, the purpose, the way the way Donald has often used NDAs is seem, they seem to be covering up crime. So I'm not entirely sure why that's okay, and and that was why I another reason I was willing to to take the risk 
by publishing the book, you know, even if the NDA had been technically valid, which I don't believe it was, it was covering up fraud. So how is that all right? We have a, a question from the UK. Can I can I jump in here, Renato? I've got there's so many questions on your Yeah, our feed. listeners have a ton of yeah. questions for you, Barry. So, so Patty's working overtime today. <laughs> no, these are great. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by this one, too, because I've been curious about this. Uh, Mary, this is a question from the UK. Did, did Donald have friends growing up who are still his friends, or does he use, his, use people for his own gain and then get rid of them once they cease to be useful to him? Because he seems very spiteful. Sure. I, you know, um, whether or not I, I don't believe he is still friends with people he grew up with, but I'm not positive. I can't say that with 100 percent certainty. But then there's also the question is, what do we mean, mean by friends? Um, you know, Donald strikes me as the kind of person who doesn't have friendships in the way most of us mean that word. <laughs> you know, um, everything's transactional with him. And also everything is absolutely um, conditional. There's a third reason, too, is that, that, you know, people just don't have any use for him anymore. Because, again, there, it's not really a two-way street, and it's not friendship the way most people mean friendship. But if, you know, if he isn't uh, in a friendly relationship with somebody anymore, and we see this with, with his staff and the executive branch, it's most likely because they just weren't loyal enough to him, and he ditched them. Yeah, I thought one thing I found fascinating is, you know, you talking in the book, Mary, about how different members of the family reacted to his presidential run. One person in particular that you mentioned was Melania. You mentioned at one point, you know, her lack of words of support of uh, for him during the campaign. I'm curious, you know, what your take is on her. I think she's sort of a mysterious person to many of us because she doesn't say all that much. I think a lot of people are wondering how she could uh, tolerate uh, being with somebody who behaves the way that he does. And there's all sorts of speculation about, you know, who, who's, you know, what her real mindset is or what she's, what, what her angle is or what her personality is. What insight can you give us into uh, Melania Trump? Honestly, very little. I met her once and, uh, during the conversation I had um, with her and Donald, uh, I had showed up early for Father's Day at his apartment in Trump Tower. So it's just the three of us. It was very awkward. Um, she said one word the entire conversation. So unfortunately, I have no insight into who she is. What I will say, however, is that she's his third wife. You know, there was a track record there. And there's plenty of information about who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's not as if, you know, she didn't have information uh, and that she was going into anything with her eyes closed. And sometimes, honestly, if somebody's in a relationship with a bad person, they could also just be a bad person and not have a problem with it. Um, I don't know, but they've been married a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know what? I don't know. I don't know what their personal life is like, but I don't know. I haven't seen anything to indicate that uh, she has a problem with him. And from what I remember, she she was a birther. So, you know, she's a racist and clearly has no problem with that. Yeah, I it really I mean, I I think for many of us. One of our the first times that we paid a lot of attention to a statement by her is when she wore that jacket when she visited uh, children in the border. 
you know, saying, you know, I don't really care, do you? Um, you know, it, it really sent a message in the face of children who were suffering or being treated uh, in a way that I think many people would regard as below the, not only the values of the United States, but really the values that all of us have as human beings. Um, for her reaction to that was particularly uh, callous, cold, and without any empathy. Yeah, absolutely. Does it does it not remind you of it is what it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in in the case of I really don't care to you, I think the explanation was given that that was a message to the media that she didn't care about any negative uh, coverage that she was getting. So it was both heartless and really self centered. Um, so you know uh, that says a lot as well because that you don't you cannot be in the position she's in you know whether she wants to be there or not i don't know without being incredibly mindful of how powerful your messages are without a doubt i mean look if you're you know traditionally if if the first lady or to a lesser extent the president wears a particular item of clothing even without a message on it sometimes that will make some sort of statement, whether it's a tan suit or in the case, and unfortunately there's a gendered sort of misogynistic element to it, but nonetheless, the first, the first lady wearing certain outfits will, people yep. will talk about it. Right. So you can imagine. Yeah. Her, Michelle Obama and her sleeveless shirt. Yeah. People had started a conversation for, for um, in that case, perhaps for worse, but nonetheless, and here you have a, an explicit message on, on a jacket that wouldn't ordinarily be the sort of thing that we would see her wearing. Uh, of course, it's going to generate uh, controversy. And, you know, if that was directed towards the media, as you point, uh, point out, it's very self-centered uh, in the face of the suffering of, of children who have been separated from their families. Yeah, that's disgraceful. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I'm curious about is your reaction to people who kind of play armchair psychologist uh, uh, in relation to Donald Trump. You know, one thing I found fascinating is you have someone, you're someone who actually has the training to talk about these matters in a professional way. And yet you, you approach that subject with more um, caution more care uh, and more gingerly than people who are not have no formal training in that area. But I think, you know, people like, for instance, George Conway, who I like very much uh, in many ways as a very good lawyer uh, who approached that subject. And I'm curious, what do you think of people who 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 conduct their sort of armchair uh, diagnoses of Donald Trump? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it it's evidence that they're they're not professional mental health providers, you know, because <laughs> they they don't have the same kinds of uh, boundaries around um, diagnosing or talking about a person's uh, potential psychopathologies um, and, you know, don't have the training, obviously. So it's not that, I, you know, I, I, as I say in the book, I don't really have a problem with talking about Donald as a narcissist, because he is one. You know, even if we're talking about the term in its colloquial meaning, he's, mm-hmm. he's a narcissist. Like, he's the kind of guy you don't want to be trapped in an elevator with or, you know, cornered at by at a party. Um, <laughs> but um, I think 
what what's been more troubling to me um because you know i haven't heard anything that's so egregious that it kind of undercuts uh the case uh for paying more attention to donald's mental health or lack thereof um what and and i was careful simply because you know one, I don't, I don't think it's that important to know what his diagnosis is. Two, it's way too complicated. Um, so I was much more interested in just kind of helping people understand how wide-ranging the problem might be, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if we look at it from several different angles. So what's more troubling to me is that the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, has not allowed its members to speak freely about Donald's potential mental health problems. Um, you know, I don't know if it's specifically tied to the Goldwater rule from the 60s when Barry Goldwater was running against Johnson. Um, but whatever the case, it, it's not helpful. I mean, there should be a duty to warn. You know, people speculate about Donald's physical health all the time. So so why is his mental health, which which I would argue is infinitely more important to the future health and safety of our country. Why is that out of bounds? Yeah, you know, I really wish it could be approached in that fashion. I like the way you put it. You talk about his physical health, his mental health. You know, one thing that I think we have to separate is, you know, physical, for example, just in the area of physical health. I think the physical health of the president is important. It's a relevant factor for people to consider, given that uh, you, you know it's a very stressful job and it's a job that you want someone to have the ability to keep up with. But a lot of times, of course, it goes into make, uh, attacking him for his weight or his appearance or the you know what he puts on his skin. Which I, I honestly, there's a thousand reasons why I would never vote for Donald Trump for to be president of the United States. But that those aren't one of them. Those aren't those aren't reasons. It's similarly in the mental uh, health side of things. The mental health of a president is absolutely vital for purposes of making sure we have somebody who is capable of running this country or their executive branches and I'm running the country, but running the executive branch. And yet there's this discussion of it can be almost making fun of mental illness in a way that I don't think is, is um, appropriate to do. I'm curious what your reaction is to that. Yeah. I, you know, I think by not allowing that conversation to happen among professionals, it does kind of make it fodder. Um, for people who may not understand just how serious this is, you know, um, and it does then fall into that, you know, his his uh, inability to find a word, or you know, slurring his speech, or um, or just like not making any sense sometimes with what he says, um, his impulsivity, wh- whatever the case may be, it does it does start to fall into the category of his of his weight or his bronzer. And that's really not, uh, that's, those are not the kind of conversations we should be having, you know, because we then undermine the seriousness of what, in my view, is absolutely the most important thing that should be discussed in the most uh, boundaried and professional way. Yeah, what I found, I, I I really appreciate. I agree with that perspective. I appreciate that perspective, that perspective, Mary. And I, one thing I will say that was really helpful and interesting to me is the way in which you focused on 
what you really did know a lot about in your family uh, and and helped us understand how that could give us insight into Donald Trump. You know, particularly, I really felt in many ways your book was f- focused a lot on Fred Trump, uh, Donald Trump's father. And there's a lot of people who are listening who who haven't read your book. Um, in fact, I, some of my patrons are reaching out to me with questions, and I'm like, oh, if you read the book, you'd know the answer to that one. So I know there are people <laughs> who did not read your book. Can you help uh, those people who haven't read your book understand you know, I'll just give them a taste of of why it is that you believe that um, that the history of Donald Trump and his relationship with his father helps us understand him as a human being and, and how he's behaving now. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great question, um, because, you know, why is what happened 60 years ago relevant uh, when we're dealing with all of these crises in the, in the present moment? Uh, so, you know, the, the, more, the most general thing I'll say is that, you know, obviously Donald's not my patient, but if we want to understand anybody clinically, we, in addition to how they're presenting themselves and and their current symptomatology, we need to, we need to know their story, right? And it's always important to know where somebody came from and the environment in which they were raised. So, when somebody is in a position of power like Donald is, it becomes even more important. Not because there's anything unique, although there may be <laughs> about my particular family, um, but because it can be, you know, what passes prolonged. Uh, it could be an indicator of what we can expect. And the conclusion we can draw is that based on what we know from his past, Donald's not ever going to get better. He's only going to get worse. One of the reasons for that is because his father, my grandfather, was a sociopath. And I don't mean that uh, in um, you know, a casual way. I mean, technically, he was a sociopath. And when I started writing the book, what honestly freaked me out was how easy it was to identify these through lines that went from my grandfather straight to the Republican Party. You know, um, how my grandfather, being a sociopath, used other people as extensions of himself and his own ambitions. So my father, in my grandfather's eyes, failed that test because he didn't have the right kind of personality. He was he was too kind. He was too sensitive. He wasn't a killer. He wasn't a tough guy. Um, so when when my grandfather saw in Donald traits that he could he could use to advance his own agenda, he seized on him. And Donald, in in that way, over the course of time, Donald became somebody who is eminently useful to smarter, more powerful men, which explains, I think. Part of it, at least, what's going on with Putin. So, if we look at uh, not just how my grandfather was with Donald, but also how Donald treated my grandfather later when my grandfather started having Alzheimer's, but also, you know, the dynamic that existed between Donald, my father, and their father, uh, it has a lot of explanatory power, you know. Um, 
I think that the, the story I tell, or at least I hope it is, is, is a foundational narrative about not just how Donald became who he is, but in part how he got where he is, which, you know, is not something that's self-evident based on his career and his, his deficiencies, quite honestly. I I have to say one thing that I thought was very interesting about Fred Trump is you you talk a little bit about how he believed in or was very taken with this idea of the power of positive thinking without maybe even reading the book. But just the idea of it was something that um, appealed to him. I noted that Jonathan Swan probably read your book because he used that. He has to question about that in his recent interview uh, of Donald Trump, the power of positive thinking. Yeah, I, I, I'm somebody who look. I try to be confident and believe in myself, right? If you're, especially if you're trying to do something difficult. What What is it about the way that Fred Trump and perhaps his his son use that idea in a way that? What is it? What is unhealthy or problematic about the way that they have taken that idea and interpreted it? It's a great question because it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's a bad thing, right? You know, there's nothing wrong with being positive and optimistic and believing in yourself. It became problematic because my grandfather totally perverted the idea of that. It wasn't that being positive was important. It was that failing to be was failure. In other words, um, you could never admit mistakes. You could never admit you were wrong. You could never apologize. You could never be weak in any way. And if you failed to uh, have a good attitude in, in, in the way my grandfather meant it, then you were basically dismissed, ignored, or, you know, in the case of my dad, uh, like totally dismantled. So because my grandfather took it to such an extreme, it, it became this really toxic environment where basically other kinds of human experience were essentially uh, not allowed. The, there was such a narrow range of emotion allowed in my family that it was it was really destructive. It worked for my grandfather because, first of all, as a sociopath, he, ha- he had a narrow range of human emotions, <laughs> um, you know. He was also completely in charge of his world. He had his he had his incredibly successful business. He had his family exactly the way he wanted his family to be. He was he was essentially um, you know king of his universe. He always had his way. What was there to be unhappy about, right? So my grandfather used positivity as a, a weapon that he wielded against people that he believed were weaker than he was, or as a way to get out of an uncomfortable situation. So if my grandmother, who had osteoporosis and was in the hospital a lot, was lying in a hospital bed in, in the library in my grandparents' house, writhing around in agony, my grandfather, who couldn't tolerate it because he did, had no empathy, would just say, you know, just got to think positive, toots. everything's great, right? And then he'd, like, run from the room so he didn't have to deal with her pain. Um, which I guess was fine for him, but was horrible for her. Hmm. Yeah, it seemed, you know, it, it seems like this, the, the, you know, this may play a role in how Trump approaches so many of these 
problems that are facing our country. Everything's always the best. Everything's great. Everything is going to be fine. It it seems like his approach to everything from the pandemic to the economy to every other issue that we have befalling our country right now. That's absolutely the case. And, you know, I, I could say definitively that we're where we are with this horrifying disease, COVID-19, precisely because of the power of positive thinking. Um, not just because my uh, because Donald buys into the philosophy, but because he witnessed what happened to people who didn't or couldn't. Hmm. So nothing can ever be wrong. He can never be wrong. So he couldn't even admit it existed because it was a bad thing. And he felt like it would be associated with him somehow. And then it, when it became unavoidable and it had to be dealt with, he had to pretend that it wasn't that big a deal because otherwise he would have had to admit that he was wrong about something. Like course correcting isn't, in his mind, being mature and, and you know, moving away from a mistake towards towards something productive. It's admitting you were wrong, which you can't do. So you just keep denying and say, oh, it's going to go away. It's great. The numbers are lying. It's a hoax. And it is what it is, is where we end up, which is, um, I, you know, that phrase is a, that's a family catchphrase. So it, it, it makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up when I hear him say it. But it is what it is means I'm not going to do anything about it, and I don't really care. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. I mean, it's it's one thing for us to for us is is uh, you as uh, normal citizens who are having a beer and watching the baseball game to say it is what it is. It's another thing when you're the president of the United States and it's your job to coordinate a federal response to the pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I will just say that's really uh, that w- this conversation that we're having really stands in stark contrast to. And this is a topic that, of course, you touch on in your book, is all of these discussions of this 40 chess that Trump was supposedly playing for quite some time. In other words, after this, the election uh, victory, we heard all sorts of stuff about Trump's brilliance and his skill and, you know, how he sort of outsmarted everyone. And frankly, I still I've talked I talked to lawmakers recently who I still have that mindset, uh, Democratic lawmakers who are like, oh, you know, he may pull this out and you know do this and that. And they're they're it's almost like they're scared of their own shadow, worried about what he may do. You know, I'm curious what your reaction was to people uh, kind of um, engaging in that type of analysis. It's just absurd, you know, Uh, and and I I spent 2015 and 2016 in a constant state of confusion that anybody took him seriously, Uh, because if you look at the Republican primary, that was a tr- it was a strategic disaster on the part of the RNC. You know, it wasn't because Donald had his fingers on the pulse of the zeitgeist and was some kind of mastermind. It's because there was a field of 17 people. They were splitting votes all over the place, and most of them didn't drop out soon enough. You know, <laughs> it's like, huh. and it gave the base an opportunity to rally around, you know, the worst, most racist, most misogynistic anti-immigrant guy there was because he wasn't pretending that he wasn't any of those things. So it became sort of this 
self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, one thing is a side note uh, that uh, that I thought was interesting is, you know, when your book came out, there were there was a White House statement that was put out in response to your book, but there was not this sort of explosive reaction to it that we have seen Trump have to all sorts of other things that he's seen on television and so forth, at least not that I recall. Um why do you why do you think that is, and what w- what is your reaction to that? I'm going to start with the, their their legal response. Mm-hmm. They did not know what was in this book when they were trying to stop its publication. So my question was, all right, well then, what do they think is in this book? Because obviously they think it's something bad. Why do they think it's something bad if they don't know what it is? And it's because they know they've done a lot of really bad things. So there's that. Um, as for why he stopped, you know, the White House is basically, or whatever her name is, the press secretary, uh, who I'm infuriated to remember every day, I, you know, that we pay her salary, um, <laughs> said um, both that it was a bunch of lies, even though she hasn't read it. And that there's nothing in the book that nobody hasn't that that we all haven't already heard. So I thought that was an interesting. Those were two interesting <laughs> ways of looking at it. Um, but as for Donald, you know, other than I don't know, I guess he wrote one or two tweets, uh, which really were only about his personal, his you know, his thoughts about me personally and my grandparents' thoughts about me personally. There has been no pushback, and I again, I think it's because there can't be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also think that he's probably being really protected from hearing anything about it because if he were to be hearing any interviews or seeing anything or reading reviews of it, then it would be getting it under his skin to the degree that I don't think that, you know, I don't think there would be enough aides in the Oval Office able to sit on him to keep him from tweeting about it. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, it is interesting, though. And maybe somebody's just gotten through to him to say it would be a really, really, really bad idea. If for no other reason than it's just free publicity for me if he talks about it. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't want to, you know, he's probably already not happy that <laughs> Tony Schwartz text tweeted me that tweeted at me that, um, I guess my book sold more in, in a week than his had in 30, 29 years or something. <laughs> you know, that probably made him unhappy. <laughs> so he doesn't want to sell any more books for me. Well, I, I have to say, Mary, I think that what you offer to a lot of folks and why you're doing so well is, you know, his behavior makes us feel crazy. So you standing up and saying, no, 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 no you're not nuts. This This guy's out of control helps a lot of us. And to that, you know, one of our listeners wonders, uh, given your knowledge in both, you know, your personal relationships in in that capacity, as well as in your professional capacity, what would you say are the best and worst ways for folks to respond to Donald, to his lies, distractions, his poor me messaging? Never meet him on his terms. That's, that's, that's the simplest way to put it. Um, Growing up, I was always told, you know, to succeed in this family, you have to play the game. I had no idea what that meant. 
until I was an adult. But I learned through osmosis or something. So I know what the game is now. And I think I play it better than they, they do, but I will not play it the way they play it. So when Donald lies, when Donald, well, not when he lies, because he lies all the time. So like that's, that's sort of irrelevant. But when he does something to distract from something else, don't follow him. You know, never sink to his level. Like that's the best, the best illustration of what not to do is look at what Republicans did in debates with him. They sunk to his, they tried to sink to his level and they ended up looking like a bunch of idiots. And he ended up looking like somebody who had scored points, even if it was something despicable about, you know, hand size or whatever, you know, he, he looked better than somebody like Marco Rubio who tried to name call as well. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a, the best thing to do, of course, would be ignore him, but that's impossible. So um, just always play above his level. You know, be smarter, be more mature, and be condescending. You know, if Joe Biden were to debate him, he just needs to be really con- – like if Donald like, tries to call mm. him names or something, just like, oh, good one, Donald. really good like pat him on the head like he's a little boy or something right 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 tell him oh you're so adorable look at you putting words together (laughs) you know you should get an extra cookie tonight um (laughs) which you know is awful and i hate having to talk in these terms but the world is at stake here and if that's what's required then that's what's required because right now 100% 100% of elected Republicans continue to be behind him, which is why what you said about Mitt Romney, not that it surprised me, but it's just, it's, it's a shame, right? So um, we're not putting, there's nothing that Donald is going to do that will change Republicans' minds right now. So we need to pile on and just make Donald unravel to the point where nobody can ignore it. I know it feels like we've been there a million times, but I mean, to an extreme degree, unravel. Hopefully that will, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be a sadist here. I just mean make him an ineffective campaigner, you know, just put him off his game is what what I'm saying. Well, and, and, you know, the pandemic has sort of artificially set that up as well because he can't do his rallies. He can't bathe in that, that, you know, sort of artificial glory. Exactly. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, too. Um, and it, not only that, but the media follow him around like puppy and continue to give him free advertising by, you know, the pandemic things, which have now taken the place of rallies and or going to, uh, where was it? Oklahoma, Tulsa. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, that's, that should stop, but since it is, hasn't stopped, then at least, you know, he is confined, and that's important because it's probably driving him up a wall. Like, for example, if he were to have the convention or some his acceptance on the South Lawn, no media should show up for that, you know, if it's illegal. Um, but since we can't really count on anybody, we, we need to do it ourselves, you know. Um, but you're right. We do have a boost by his being confined. Like I was shocked to hear 
that they weren't uh, that he wasn't accepting the nomination wherever it was supposed to be. It's changed a few times, so I'm not sure. I was really shocked by that, in part because it's it's a concession, right? Uh, that all is not well, uh, even though he's not going to put it that way. Um, but we can't we can't let even that kind of thing slide. So hopefully Joe Biden has some good advisors around him. For sure, some of them may be listening to our podcast. So I, I think your your advice is is uh, if any advice you have to offer them, uh, uh, I think is helpful. Well, another one is don't debate him without conditions. Release your tax returns. I'll debate you or some something like that. You know, it sh- it shouldn't come without conditions because he's gotten away with so much. He shouldn't be allowed to get away with it anymore. Why do you think he is so reluctant to release his tax tax returns? Uh, again, only speculating, but there's no way that those tax returns don't contain evidence of n- numerous crimes dating back forever. The taxes that the, the documents I handed over were, you know, the, the vast majority of those were my grandfather's tax returns and the tax returns of all of his entities. And they had nothing to do directly with any of my aunts and uncles, and they still proved this enormous amounts of tax fraud from which they directly benefited. So imagine what his actual tax returns to do. I mean, you know, just this is another. This was another really interesting slip. Donald accused me of committing a crime because I had I released his tax returns. I didn't have his tax. I'm his niece. I don't have his tax returns. But the fact that he thought that it was his tax returns that showed massive amounts of tax fraud suggests something, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. I always wondered, you know, because also just perhaps his tax returns might show his wealth is lower than he's claimed, could show he's oh, paying absolutely. no taxes or very low yep. taxes. So uh, there's a number of reasons that could be there. So I, I really, you know, like you said. Zero charity gifts, like literally zero um, gifts to charity. Uh, sure. I mean, I think those would be the worst thing would be the the that he's not as wealthy as he claims to be and that we could probably even show, and I think somebody may already have shown this, is that he has much less money than my grandfather even gave him, which suggests that he's squandered all of that wealth. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars squandered over the years because he's such a terrible businessman. Um so, I mean, you could argue he never was a businessman, <laughs> that he was just a, the face of a, a front. Um, but anyway, I, I think it would be the illusion of wealth being uncovered plus the, you know, the criminality, potential money laundering, tax evasion, you know, shell corps, what have you. I think there's a lot going on there. Well, you know, it seems to me um, that in part of why you wrote this book was be, this was in many ways your way to be involved and to do something that you felt was in, in part a public service during this election season. And I'm curious if you did feel that way and, you know, what message you have to our listeners who are uh, also trying to figure out what they can do this season. Yeah, I did. I, I did feel away. You know, if, if Donald weren't in the Oval Office, I never would have done this. 
because it, you know, um, it's, it was hard and it's personal. And I mean, I was happy to have an opportunity to tell people about my dad and to kind of rehabilitate uh, his reputation, which Donald has done his, everything in his power to, to undermine. But um, no, it was absolutely, uh, and, you know, first and foremost, a way to make a difference because we're in a very, very dangerous path here. I feel like this country and, and potentially the world is on a knife edge right now. Um, so I just, the, the timing of it was completely fortuitous, you know, in publishing, there's no way to know when something's going to happen. I started writing the book almost two years ago. So this has been a long time coming. Wow. As for what other people can do, um, it all comes down to turnout. We, we cannot continue to be a democracy if 50% of the electorate doesn't vote. Um, and we have so many institutional disadvantages. First of all, he's a, you know, alleged incumbent. Uh, so he has the power of, uh, the Oval Office behind him. Um, we are completely burdened by voter suppression and gerrymandering, which there's nothing we can do about in the next three months. So it's going to come down to sheer force of numbers. Joe Biden needs to win in a landslide. So the only way that's going to happen is to turn out the vote. And so people, if people really, really, really want to make a difference, that's what that's what they need to get involved with, whether it's volunteering to drive people to the polls or voter registration or whatever it is. Uh, you know, even if it's just getting a friend who didn't vote last time to vote this time, I, I think that's where it's at. Yeah, I think particularly given that he is trying to delegitimize our electoral process and is trying to trying to actively, I think, undermine particularly the Postal Service and other things. It's really important for us to do as much as we can. As you point out, the larger the margin it is, the har- the the harder it is for him to potentially do something that's anti-democratic uh, to subvert our electoral process or our confidence in our democracy. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point because and I should have said that he is he's already cheating, undermining the post office, delegitimizing mail. But that's cheating because he's in the position he's in. He's not what some random person on a street corner, you know, floating a conspiracy theory, you know. So and the other thing people definitely should not do is try to convince people who are already voting for don't waste your time trying to convince people not to vote for him if they are going to, because it's it's not going to happen. You know, we need to be more proactive and productive. Yeah. And to protect our own mental health, because it's like banging <laughs> your head against the wall. Yeah. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Exactly. Yes. If you if you need to tap out, tap out. It's okay. Well, Mary, look, I want to make sure that I mention your book again. Um, your book's t- uh, called "Too Much and Never Enough: How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man," uh, published by Simon and Schuster. It's available everywhere. I. Uh, you know, I got it from a local bookstore, but uh, it's on Amazon. It's on, it's everywhere. Um, wh- what do you if there's one thing that you want? Uh, I think people have a good sense of your book uh, by now. But is there anything else that you want uh, our listeners to know if there's one thing you want them to know about your book? Um, just that, you know, that it's not just about my family, that 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 it, it has a broader application. And I think 
if we want to understand not just why Donald is the way he is or um, how we got to be that way, but what could happen in the, you know, in the near future. Um, I think it's, it's a, it's a good uh, lens through which to, to look at all of that. And I think that, I think that that's right as somebody who is, been reading your book and I want to just thank you for coming on once again. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I've learned uh, from the, co- I've learned a lot from the conversation and I suspect Patty and our listeners uh, will learn a lot as have learned a lot as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank both of you. I, this was really, this was, I don't know. It was like visiting old friends. I really Aww. had a great time talking to you. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 